Okay, you guys, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 only. Verse 1 only. The reason for that is because we are going to gather a lot of information from 1, and then we're going to build upon it through the rest of the study of 21 and partially 22. But 1 and, and then next week, 2 on are very important. So last week we read uh, the chapter that wraps the whole age up. That was chapter 20 of Revelation, and so now we're entering into what happens after that age, and so it'll be interesting. We'll begin with a prayer, we'll sing the Word of God, set to music, and then we will sit in silence and come back and get into our verse-by-verse of this revelatory book. Lord, we uh, pause and thank you this time for life. Uh, We um, seek to praise you in the storm, we seek to praise you in the good times and in the harvest, and we just pray that your Spirit will be with us. We pray that we will um, be enlightened by the content of our study, that somehow lights will go on in areas that we uh, abided in darkness, and that it's because of you and your spirit, the things I say which are off will be forgotten. We pray that these things will work to your glorification and our good as your creations, as your children, as your sons and daughters here on earth. So be with us as we consider the contents of Revelation 21 now, and now as we Consider the words to the song we're going to sing. In Jesus' name, amen. But we also glory in tribulations, knowing the tribulation produces
But we also glory in tribulations, knowing the tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance.
Okay. <coughs> um, all right. Last week, we wrapped the whole age up, uh, Revelation 1 through 20, uh, 1 through uh, 20 in it. Uh, we read that death and Satan were cast into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment was introduced, which means um, the way I teach it is that that judgment was for that age and those people who were of it. And we now come to whatever God wanted the seven churches to know, and presumably us, about what was to happen next. And these are the wrap-up chapters of Revelation 21 and 22. So let's get started by reading the text of chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Many Bible commentators agree, no matter what their eschatology is, whether they're historicists or idealists or futurists or preterists, they believe that this chapter is the renewal of all things. And... Uh, so what they're suggesting is like we taught last week, is that the end of that Jewish age, remember the Jews had two ages in mind, the end of the age of the Old Covenant was wrapping up, and the beginning of the New Age was coming, and right here we have the 40-year period, that generation when all these things were happening with the early church. So uh, the renewal of all things, and to the fulfillment of this chapter, um, to the fulfillment of this view, the chapter is describing what is and what has been since everything occurred that is described in chapter 20. So, simply put, 20, Satan is even cast in the lake of fire. Death and hell are cast in the lake of fire. We are talking about the end of the old covenant completely. The great white throne judgment happens and people who are in hell, hell is cast in the lake of fire. People who are in hell are let out and they stand before the great white throne and they are judged according to the things that are written in the book. So if we break the renewal chapter down, I'm going to break it down into three groups and then we're going to read it first. The first group is Revelation 21, 1 through 8, where John writes about everything becoming new. All right. And the second uh, group is... Revelation 9 through 21, which describe the new Jerusalem, which is mentioned in the very first verse. And then we'll read that. And then we're going to read the third part of Revelation 21, which describes the glory of the new Jerusalem. So that's what's happening here. We've had an old Jerusalem, haven't we? And, and we've talked all about that city being besieged in 70 AD and how it's been attacked and how the temple has been torn down and how not one stone laid upon it and that fire came and destroyed all the genealogy. It was the destruction of the priesthood and how there's no genealogy, there's no priesthood and how the Jewish nation, 100,000 plus Jews were taken into exile and, and they were sold off or they put into slavery and a million one were killed, slaughtered there at the hand of Nero whose name is, spells out, according to John, the, Jew, the Hebrew Gemetra uh, 666. I'm not going to tell you his name in here, but I'm going to write, this is the number, to, you guys can figure it out, 666. This is the mark of the beast who's bringing all this upon them. Okay, so let's read together. After all this is said and done, John says, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, 
and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All right. The second part of the revelation, as I said, is describes the new Jerusalem that is mentioned in the first verse. And there came unto me one of seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a great wall and high, and had twelve gates, and the gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written upon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And on the excuse me, on the three excuse me, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, twelve thousand furlongs. And the, excuse me, the length and breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof according to... 144 cubits according to the measure of a man that is of the angel and the building of the wall of it was jasper and the city was pure gold likened to clear glass and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all matter of precious stones and the first foundation was jasper the second sapphire the third uh, chalcedony the fourth an emerald the fifth sardonyx the sixth sardius the, the seventh chrysolite the eighth beryl the ninth topaz, the ten chrysoprasus, and the eleventh uh, jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the city street, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. The final or third part of Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27, describes the glory of the New Jerusalem. John writes, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. 
That is such an interesting phrase. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations, or ethnos, into it, and there shall no and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay. So many things there because we have seen there's the end of death, the end of Satan, the end of all this. But suddenly John sees a new heaven and a new earth, but he's still talking about people who do abominable things. How is this possible? What, what's going on here? Well, we're going to go into it. And there's three parts in all three speak of the new Jerusalem. All right. So I'm going to spend some time talking about some important facets of chapter 21 and once they're established, we'll be able to work our way through the rest of the chapter more easily. And these facets uh, of chapter 21 are the new heaven and the new earth. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. The second thing is the new Jerusalem. And the third thing is the fact that there's no more seas. That's all in verse 1. Okay? So let's talk about the notion of the new Jerusalem. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover some stuff. And then I'm going to recapitulate like the book of Revelation does. And I'm going to cover it again with a different angle. And you'll notice that when we, we, as we do it. There is some compelling evidence in Scripture that says the New Jerusalem exists today. There are people who are waiting for the New Jerusalem. And they're waiting for this kingdom of God to come down from heaven upon the earth. Uh, usually those are the futurists who are waiting for Jesus to have the second coming and to come. And so we are not waiting for it. It was created in full at the end of the age described in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a symbolic illustration of what Philippians 3.20 talks about and what Hebrews 11.13 talks about and what John 17.16 says. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship, listen, our citizenship is in heaven. That's what it says. So if we belong to a city on high and our, and our citizenship is in heaven, then I, we can talk about where that new Jerusalem uh, lies and how it reigns. Uh, Hebrews 11.13 refers to the saints as we are strangers and exiles on this earth. So the idea is if there's a new Jerusalem that supplants the old Jerusalem and it came spiritually from heaven, as John says, we are members of it and we are, not, we are strangers and foreigners here. We, this environment on this world is not ours. Okay? John 17, 16 echoes this idea when referring to himself and the saints. Jesus says, they are not of the world even as I am not of this world. When Pilate came to Jesus and says, are you a king? He says, you say I am. Of course I am. And he says, well, are you a king? And he says, look, for this reason, I came into this world. But my kingdom is not of this world. We belong to a different one. So in Revelation 21, chapter, verse 2, the new Jerusalem is depicted as, quote, coming down from heaven to earth, illustrating the fact that the saints 
are in heaven and, uh, and the saints are not in the earthly Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem. And if that new Jerusalem is coming down to earth, that means people here are part of it, that we are part of the new Jerusalem now. When we die, we will continue to be part of that new Jerusalem, which is in heaven. So therefore, I think the fact that the saints are strangers and exiles in this world, that we are not of this world, that we have our citizenship in heaven, the new Jerusalem is a heavenly and, and an earthly spiritual kingdom which is abiding. You join it here, you enter it there. It's both, and Scripture talks, and we'll talk about that. So while I'm on the subject, it's just a side note, but I think that coming to a conclusion after studying this, that for Christians, how we engage in this world, it's really important to realize that we are not citizens of it. And that is, we ought to allow ourselves as visitors and guests on this world to relate to the people who this is their kingdom better. Um, how do we expect guests to, to act if they come to our home? We invite people to come and stay and we provide them with a bed and we provide them with meals or whatever, hospitality. And what would you do if you invited a guest to your home and the guest criticized the way you cook or the way you keep house or the way you live your life? They are visitors to your home, and all they do is criticize you, right? So it would be very inconsiderate. So I think that we have in some ways behaved the same way. Our kingdom's not of this world, and yet we spend a lot of time criticizing and attacking the people of this world. This is their kingdom. This is where they abide. And, and so it seems to me Christians ought to be loving and understanding to those who are of this world, almost look to them with like a wink and you're going to be that way and whatever. I'm going to love you as a Christian. Hopefully you'll see the light and want to be part of the kingdom that I'm part of, but it's certainly not here. My kingdom's not of this world, neither was my Lord and Savior's. It's of a different place. So shining the light of love in the way we would want any house guest to be toward us. We, so the scripture makes clear that we are not citizens of this kingdom here, of this world. And in fact, it doesn't want us to be. And so we would therefore then keep our eye on the kingdom that we're a part of. And that's this new Jerusalem, which we'll talk about. So something to consider. There's more imagery found in Revelation 21 and 22. The new Jerusalem is a symbolic depiction of the victorious church. Uh, on earth, which is perhaps portrayed in the image of Jerusalem that is in heaven. In Hebrews 12, tw uh, 22, it says, But we, you and I, them, are come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So, again, there's been a brick and mortar Jerusalem of the old covenant. It had a temple. It was where the Jews had their, it was the city of peace. It's where Jesus came to reach his own. The wrath of God has fallen upon that as evidenced by almost two years talking about this book. And we have shown from the, uh, the records of Josephus and other historians how Jerusalem was leveled. And that was when Christ said, I tell you, a generation won't pass and I will come back. He says that to his apostles on the Olivet Discourse. So within 40 years, that's a, a biblical generation. He comes back and levels the old Jerusalem. 
Now, I know today there are people who give allegiance to Israel and Jerusalem, and they consider it's God's people and all that stuff, and that's their right. They can do that. I'm not anti-Semitic, but there is no difference in my mind between Jew and Greek, male and female, bond and free. Ever since the leveling of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that has been a level playing field. And now we are either part of the new Jerusalem, which is in heaven, and which also exists here among believers, or we're not. Galatians 4.26 says, But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. That is the Jerusalem that we are looking to now as Christians. So this last passage tells us two important things. One, there is a Jerusalem which is above. That is the fulfillment city. The first brick and mortar Jerusalem was a type and shadow of what was to come. All right? And meaning it's not of the earth and that she is the mother of us all. That's how scripture puts, describes this new Jerusalem that is in heaven. Really interesting. So I would suggest that in the face of this last description, that the new Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all, is that which we also refer to as the bride of Christ. That the new Jerusalem is the mother of us all. That is Christ's bride. And more on that later. But bottom line, the new Jerusalem is quite literally the new heaven and the new earth. It is encompassed by this new Jerusalem that is predicted by John in Revelation uh, 21 verse 1. The old heaven and earth correspond to the old Jerusalem. The end of that place was coming as described in all these chapters of Revelation. In the very first chapter, Jesus says to John, write, because I'm coming quickly. Tell the seven churches, behold, I come quickly. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. This is what it's going to look like. I couldn't tell you what it looked like when I walked the earth, but now God has given me, Christ, the revelation to share with you, John. Take it to the saints and tell them what the end is going to look like. The last chapter, which we're going to get to in the next chapter, 22, it ends with, behold, I come quickly. I come quickly. I come quickly. Three, four reminders in that last chapter saying, this is what's going to happen to all of this former old economy as promised. The new heaven and the new earth was now corresponding to the new Jerusalem, which is above the mother of us all, spiritual, thrives in both places. So I think there's something kind of cool here. Um, and this is not gospel truth. This is something I'm sharing with you. Uh, later on, uh, lately on Heart of the Matter, we've had a guest that's been talking about near-death experiences. And these accounts that, uh, and there are thousands of them, and again, not gospel, could be just people's brains firing off. But if not, the, uh, for instance, that physician from um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, who was a nominal Catholic, I think, uh, underwater 17 minutes, was a, a cardiologist and knows brains die. She writes a whole thing about it, and she, she talks about the things that are described here in John, um, in Revelation 21, about the new Jerusalem and about heaven are very, very, very similar to the things she says she witnessed when she went there. And that's not just her. It's many of these NDE people who supposedly see into heaven and see what it's about. And, and I think that's part of what God is allowing ever since this age has come in. 
often striking similarities between the New Jerusalem that are described in Revelation 21. And then also throughout Revelation 21 and 22, the triumphant Christian church, um, whether, which exists in both places, the triumphant Christian church. The nation of Israel was not triumphant. They sold the Messiah. The Messiah was given up. He came back with reward for those who believed on him and with punishment for those who didn't. But the victory has been in those who have received him, who are members of his body or the church, existing after this life in the New Jerusalem, existing in this life in the New Jerusalem that is here. And so because the Christian body is present both on heaven and earth, and because the Christian body on earth is destined for heaven, the Christian body of believers who are on earth now are destined for the heavenly New Jerusalem too. That's where they're going. That's why their kingdom's not of this world. The New Jerusalem is the church body described in the likeness of heaven. So Revelation 21 and 22 follow a precedent set by Ezekiel 28 and 37 where earthly realities are portrayed as heavenly revelations. So there's some historical significance to this imagery used too. Just to let you know, in a literal material sense, after Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD, for the next thousand years, Jerusalem became a Christian city. In fact, it was filled, like, I don't know the percent, but it was high, of Christians. It became, and somewhat, a new Jerusalem. So that's actually even a material manifestation of the new Jerusalem on earth, too. And that is where it was almost exclusively a Christian city. So the fact that the Christian church on earth is called the New Jerusalem might also be an appropriate title relative to that. All right. The New Jerusalem, as we continue to talk about it, as you've seen in what we just read, is described in utopian sense. And in order to symbolize and mirror the Jerusalem that is in heaven and waiting for the saints at death. And the New Jerusalem may be described in language that is meant to intentionally point to a peaceful bliss that happens after the war. Remember Jerusalem? Have you ever heard of Salam? Jerusalem, city of peace. That means after the war. So the New Jerusalem for us after this life is entering into it fully because we're not we're fully there yet. We're just spiritually there, but carnally we're still in, the, in this world. So when we enter in there, it's the city of peace. It's a place of rest. And that is uh, juxtaposed against a city that was in constant warfare as a literal brick and mortar city. All right. So we have some things there. Uh, peaceful bliss. And of course, another idea of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22 is that it was given this name so as to contrast to the old apostate Jerusalem. Jerusalem was apostate. And that is why Jesus pointed to the temple of that place and said, not one stone's going to lay uh, upon any other. And we know that uh, in John's vision here in Revelation, that Jerusalem is called the whore of Babylon. She becomes the whore who's riding in on the Roman backs. She's joined up with them. And so in scripture, God divorces. Did you know that? That Jesus, uh, scripture says God hates divorce, but he does divorce uh, Jerusalem. He divorces Israel. Uh, God divorces his previous wife, who's become the whore of Babylon. And because of her adulterous affair with Rome and other pagan countries, the beast depicted in Re Revelation 17, he marries a new wife. 
and that is his Christian bride. That's his Christian church. That is actually the New Jerusalem. That is where God resides now and is in the temple of people, not in brick and mortar, but in the people that are his. So during the thousand years between Israel's first century war with Rome and the first crusade, uh, Israel became exclusively Christian, echoing what that earthly New Jerusalem would be like. Hebrews 12.23 says the church has its names written in heaven because the Christian saints are destined for heaven after physical death. The church, of course, exists presently in heaven and on earth. And because the church exists in heaven and on earth, the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21 and 22 is a, listen, it's a visionary depiction of the church as it exists in both realms. It's a spiritual depiction, but it has some visionary application to what is waiting us in how he describes it. In Revelation uh, uh, 21-2, John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. This is what follows after the fulfillment of everything in chapter 20, uh, chapter 19. Now we, excuse me, chapter 20, everything is wrapped up and now John sees the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. So it could be that here in Revelation 21 and 22, the Royal Church of Christ is depicted in the symbolic imagery of a Jerusalem that comes down in the lives and hearts of a believer. We don't have our kingdom here. We are not of this world. We belong to a kingdom on high. Where do we dwell now? Well, since we don't dwell in this world spiritually, we are dwelling in the new Jerusalem. And we are going through this life waiting to be fully embraced by its contents, as described here by John. The fact that there is a Jerusalem that is in heaven suggests that the Jerusalem on earth is earthly. And even a carnal shadow of the Jerusalem that is above. And the same way that the inner sanctuary of the temple is a dark shadow of heaven above. And that's how scripture describes it. Listen to Hebrews 8.5. Speaking of the Jews, it says, They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. They, in that temple, the Jews serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Now, when something's a shadow, that means it's obscured, it's dark, it doesn't have the full meaning to it yet, all right? This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, end quote. So that's the writer of Hebrews saying, what Moses built in terms of a tabernacle and later became the temple, is a type and picture, a shadow of what is to come. Very often people who have had these uh, NDEs describe seeing cities of light of inexplicable grandeur and much like the New Jerusalem. Uh, for instance, during an NDE, a guy named George Ritchie was, quote, shown a distant city made of brilliant light its description resembled the city described in the book of Revelation, end quote. Don Piper, a minister ordained since 1985, has had a similar experience. After being brought back to life after a near-fatal car accident, Don describes having seen a city of immense beauty strongly resembling the New Jerusalem of Revelation 21. In a book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, he writes, and again, not gospel truth, 
This is just ancillary information that you might consider when it comes to the descriptions given by people who apparently died and their scientific evidence to prove it. I'm not just talking about people who you know, think they died. He says, one thing did surprise me. On earth, whenever I thought of heaven, I anticipated that one day I'd see a gate made of pearls because the Bible refers to the gates of pearl. The gate wasn't made of pearls, but was pearlescent, perhaps iridescent, maybe more descriptive. To me, it looked as if someone had spread pearl icing on a cake. The gate glowed and shimmered. I paused and stared at the glorious hues and shimmering shades. The luminescence dazzled me, and I would have been content to stay at the spot. That uh, doctor I just mentioned from uh, Jackson Hole said the same thing. Uh, I would be content to just stay where I was. Yet I stepped forward as if being escorted into God's presence. I paused just outside the gate and I could see inside. It was like a city with paved streets. To my amazement, they have been constructed of gold. If you could imagine a street paved with gold bricks, that's as close as I can come to describing what lay inside the gate. Everything I saw was bright, the brightest color my eyes had ever beheld, so powerful that no human, earthly human, could take in this brilliance, uh, whatever it's worth. In Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem is pictured much in the same way uh, as it is described in Isaiah 60. Now listen to this Old Testament reference to uh, what Isaiah said. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation, and thy gates praise. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give her light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God shall be thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy morning shall be ended." End quote of Isaiah chapter 60. So way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah prophetically gives this description. John now, he gives us the same thing. We just read it. That there'll be no more day by night and that the Lord will be the, the glory of that kingdom. Uh, the kingdom description bears a striking resemblance. Uh, and I think that's interesting. As suggested in Hebrews 8.5, which says, and I'm going to repeat this. The Jews who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished by God when he was about to make the tabernacle, foresee, he said, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed in the mount. Psalm 78:69 says, And he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he has established forever. Notice that last line. Like the earth that he has established forever. Again, to remind you, there is not a passage in the entire Bible that says this earth, uh, this oikonomia, this uh, cosmos is going to end. Not one. The only thing we have ending in Scripture is the old former covenant. That age, that world is going to end. But we have Scripture that tells us the earth is established forever. And if you don't believe me, read uh, Psalm 78. 69. It's not going away. So when futurists preach that this earth is going to be wrapped up like a scroll and, and all that stuff, they are misinterpreting the Hebraic language describing the end of that former uh, covenant. So uh, 
the temple is a symbolic model of heaven and earth with the inner sanctuary of the temple being a copy and shadow of what's in heaven. A guy named G. K. Beale said, the Old Temple Testament was a microcosmic model of the entire heaven and earth. And if you study Leviticus and what, what Moses was told in his directions to put that tabernacle together, you can see parallels to what we're reading about here in Revelation. So one of the most explicit texts affirming this view is Psalm 7869, which I said, uh, it says, and he built the sanctuary like the heights. And Moses built the sanctuary on earth like the heights, like the earth which he founded forever. Um, Josephus, in his Antiquities 3.181, admits that the tripartite structure of the, of the tabernacle is significant to the construction of the earth. The New Jerusalem is a, also a symbolic depiction of the kingdom of God on earth and man. Listen to this. Indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you and I, every member of the body of Christ, again, every member of the body of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 6.16, is said to be a temple of the living God. Every member of the body of Christ, 2 Corinthians 6.16, is a temple of the living God. So we can see how the New Jerusalem is established here on earth. The temple is in believers. God dwells inside believers. And that is his temple here on earth. And just as the Spirit of God was believed to be present in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement with the Jews in the temple, as well as in heaven, uh, God was believed to be both in the temple and in heaven to the Jews. He didn't come down from his Shekinah glory presented himself in the Holy of Holies, but he remained in heaven too. We have the same thing going on with the New Jerusalem, where God is still in his holy temple, or in his, he is the temple. God is still in uh, the New Jerusalem, but he's also in us. And that is how the parallel fits between the Old and the New Testament. We might wonder why John would describe the body of Christ as the temple of God, which he does. And here in verse 2, John may hint to the possible answer. But before addressing that question, actually, which we're going to get to next week, uh, let me just read this again. John says, Then I saw the new heaven and earth, for the first heaven and the first earth. So ask yourself, what's he talking about? Is it what we've said? Most people believe that it's going to be um, something in our future. And the first heaven and first earth that John says he saw pass away, um, is what we're on right now. And that is going to be wiped out and we're going to come into a new one. But we, from the preterist view, full preterist or partial preterist, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That fits right in with, with Paul saying, the first uh, covenant is vanishing as we speak. And it's Peter saying it's ready to vanish away now. It's talking about that world of the former old covenant. So, and then he adds, and there was no longer any sea. So let me now go back and now rephrase in a, in a different way. Uh, given the fact that the temple is a symbolic model of heaven and earth, it's not surprising that the temple's destruction in 70 AD occurred together with the destruction of that former heaven and that former earth. You get it? 
we have a temple which Paul said it can't remain standing uh, for the new covenant to fully be in effect. So we have the old covenant, the old earth, the old heaven in place with a temple. That temple has to come down. The former old economy and old earth dies and the new heaven and the new earth comes into place. And where is his temple? It's not on Mount Moriah. It's certainly not in this state dotting the land. It is all inside the human heart, which has been cleansed by the sacrifice of God's only sacrificial son. And the spirit moves in us and we are God's temple as we bear about his spirit. The passing away of heaven and earth is implied in Revelation 20:11. Here the earth and sky fleed from the presence of God for there is no place for them. That's, that's the ending of that former economy. They flee from his presence. The destruction of heaven and earth is also described back in Revelation 6, 12 through 14. And in those verses, the sky recedes like a scroll and the stars fall to earth, an indication of the destruction of the former heaven that was under that former economy. So then in verse 14 of chapter six, we read, every mountain and island was removed from its place. Again, I know futurists are waiting for that to happen here, but that is Hebraic language to, to, to describe the removal and moving of kingdoms that had once been in power. The removal of mountains, which often represents city of, and kingdoms throughout the Bible. You can look at Psalms 2.6, 48.1, Isaiah 66.20, Jeremiah 51.25, uh, is a way of expressing that the land was made desolate and the earth was... Uh, under a new creation now, uh, like we read in Genesis chapter 1. After the Romans conquered Judea, they left its mountains. Remember, everything moves up to Jerusalem. They left its mountains or cities burned and destroyed to such an extent that Josephus says, little signs of any settlements in Judea remained. So it was scorched earth, all right? After the passing away of that heaven and that earth, established by God and his covenant people, which, uh, which was no longer anymore, God creates a new heaven and new earth based upon the uh, uh, victorious work of his son. And that is the kingdom in which we are part of today. This destruction fulfilled in the Jewish war and in the spiritual recreation, therefore, might be depicted through the book of Revelation in a similar way that the, the creation is described in Genesis. So I, don't, I didn't have time now, and we might not do it uh, in the next few weeks, but we might take the uh, creation in Genesis 1 of the earth, and we might see how that fits into the creation of a new heaven and a new earth uh, spiritually by God after the destruction of the former. So um, another thing to understand, <coughs> throughout Israel's history, it was... Um, destroyed and reconstructed a couple times. Whenever a nation was conquered by another, the Bible poetically portrays that conquest as the destruction of heaven and earth itself. That is the way the Jews speak. So when a, the nation of Israel would be, face that destruction and then reconstruction, it was the destruction of heaven and earth. And the destruction of heaven and earth is often understood to mean God is going to destroy the whole place and rebuild another one where it once stood. So the destruction of heaven and earth did not just occur here in Revelation. Whenever a nation was subjugated under or conquered by another 
invading army, the Bible poetically portrays the conquest as a destruction and a subsequent recreation. Uh, for example, when the Hebrew slaves were conquered in the land of Canaan, this conquest is described in Isaiah 51, 15 through 16 as the creation of heaven and earth. So go all the way back to Isaiah 51, verse 15 and 16, and you will see that even though the nation of Israel existed then, God speaks of what he's doing with them now as the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. He says, But I am the Lord your God who divided the seas, whose waves roared at the crossing of the Red Sea during the Exodus. The Lord host is his name. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. Now, Isaiah was alive writing this. Zion, the, the nation of Israel, has been in place. What's he talking about? That God is saying, the Lord host is my name, and I've covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth. The foundations of the earth have been laid for a thousand years. So this verse and others help us understand and to interpret the words of Peter when he wrote in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away. When people read that, they take that literally. When in the Old Testament, it was just God saying, I'm getting rid of the former oikomenia, the former economy. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. They take it literally. But we know, like I said, from scripture, nowhere is the earth, the cosmos, is the land, the globe we live on going to be burned up. Nowhere. And, but we have opposing scriptures that say it will last forever. So we know when economies and ages and worlds are being destroyed in scripture, what is being destroyed is just the age that they were under. Then also at verse 12, uh, it says, Looking and hasting for the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Very apocalyptic language, with, which futurists have been talking about for nearly 2,000 years, going to happen when Jesus says plainly, uh, you won't get to his apostles, you won't get through all of uh, Judea before you see the Son of Man return. And, and the apostles all expected it to happen. So furthermore, in Ezekiel 32, 7 through 9, Isaiah 13, and, uh, uh, 9 through 13, and Isaiah 34, 4 through 5, the fall of Babylon, the fall of Egypt, the fall of Edom, all fulfilled in 6th century BC, were all described as the destruction of heaven and earth itself. I'm sh telling you that so you can check it out and you can see that's language of how they use the destruction of things as Hebrews. Another thing that I'm not going to address today is that there could be, I haven't looked into it heavily, but that's that connection between the recreation in, of the new heavens and new earth and the actual creation of the earth in Genesis 1. Something to consider. We'll look at that later. Finally, Revelation 21.1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And then he says, and there was no more sea. Oh, you're dead in the water. No more sea. Well, we look at, we got the Pacific Ocean. We've got the Atlantic. That hasn't happened. You are done. You are shown that there's no more sea in this new heaven and new earth. 
right? All right, let's talk about that and we'll end it. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, there's a flowing river. And, uh, but if C is a symbol, some people take it literally, I take it as a symbol, or it could be literal, and I'll explain how, what does it symbolize? And I'm going to point out a few different reasons why it says, and there was no C. At the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Romans carried the brazen sea of the temple away as plunder. They took the sea. In other words, with the temple in the Jerusalem, a microcosmic model of heaven and earth, according to Psalm 78, as we said, with the Holy of Holies uh, representing heaven, then there was to be no more seas makes sense. There's no more need for the temple. It's gone. When the new heaven and new earth comes, we are the temple. There's no more need for the rituals and rites that were done in the former economy. So the seas are no more. With this temple, that large bronze bath was called the sea by the Jews. In fact, that's in scripture. If we went back to Leviticus, it's called the sea, the brazen sea. And when the temple was destroyed, as I said, they took it as booty. Additionally, the fact that verse 1 predicts that there will no longer be any sea at the creation of the new earth also points to Genesis chapter 1. This gets a little dicey, but let me try. According to Genesis 1, the earth was a water world before its creation. The conquest of Israel symbolized by the earth in Revelation, by Rome, the conquest of Israel, which is earth in, in Revelation, symbolized by Rome, which is the sea. We, we've pointed that out many times in our study, that in Revelation, when it speaks of earth and sea, it's Israel, earth, and it's Rome, sea. Rome representing Gentiles. That's why the dragon rose up from the sea. That's the Gentiles, okay? And so the conquest of Israel, Israel symbolized by the earth in Revelation, symbolized by the sea, represents the destruction of the earth by way of a, a metaphorical return to the primordial uh, creation that we find in Genesis 1. Additionally, throughout Revelation, the earth is represented again by Palestine and the sea represented by Rome or the Gentile nations. This symbol also then portrays the conquest of Palestine by Rome by a flood of the Gentiles coming in and wiping it out. This flood might signify the water world of Genesis 1-2, that the Spirit of God moves over before the creation of the earth. So the fact that there was no longer any sea, hence, at Genesis 1-9, and the receding of the waters to create the new earth that we read about there in Genesis. In other words, the fact that there is no longer any sea here in verse 1 represents the separation of the waters to expose the new earth in the same way that the earth was created by the separation of the waters in Genesis 1. It's heavy, but I thought I would throw it in there. Additionally, the fact that there is no longer any say may, may also speak to the unification now, the unification of Jew and Gentile. Okay? The Israelites were to be a nation of priests, a holy nation. They were to remain separate from the Gentiles in the former economy. They were unclean. They were the great unwashed. So we had a chasm. We had Gentiles represented as sea, and we have uh, Israel represented as land. Chasm, separate, right? Uh, 
In this way, they would not be defiled as a nation and be led astray by the surrounding Gentile nations. Okay? Perhaps the fact that there is no longer any sea represents the Gentile nations as no longer being unclean and that there's no longer a separation between Israel being land and the uh, Gentiles being sea, that now there's no more a sea, that we are all unified, and this is the way that John is describing it. Uh, remember what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, you'll know it, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, which makes me wonder why we still separate male-female roles in the church and have for centuries. Doesn't make sense to me. We're all one. There's none of this priestly, priesthood stuff going on. It's done. We are all one. Lastly, the fact that there is no longer any sea could symbolize some relation to verse 4, which says, and we'll read it next week, and we're going to get through a lot more verses next week, there will be no more death. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 26, speaking of the end of the age, says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is destroyed, okay, in the, other, in the new age. Remember, there's only two ages, the present age and the age to come to the Jews. So in the, in the next age, death is destroyed. Recall that in addition to representing Gentile nations, the sea also represents in, Gen in, uh, in uh, Revelation, Hades, and the abyss, uh, and death throughout Revelation. And we've discussed that in the past. The fact that there is no longer any sea could appear to symbolize what is later stated in verse 4, there will be no more death, okay? Because the sea has been equated with death in other parts of Revelation. So since the fall, physical death has reigned over the human race, since Jesus' physical death still reigns in this mortal by. It is not going away. So we know that when we are talking about death in Scripture, it is almost always speaking of spiritual death, the second death that occurs in the lake of fire that occurred back in chapter 19 to those people who were thrown into it, that it refers to that spiritual death. We will talk about this in weeks to come, but I'm of the opinion that having had the victory over sin and death, that all are reconciled to God by Christ since the end of that age is done, and what remains now is no more death. No more spiritual death occurring in the lake of fire. Uh, but the presence of an awarded life to some degree or another will continue. So we'll stop there. I know today was... Uh, really uh, all over with it, but I had to cover the different options to a new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, and there no more sea from the fulfillment perspective. Questions and comments. Front row Robert, wait for the mic. Brought to you by Vanna Delaney McCraney. Sean. Um, <clears throat> Say your name, please. Robert Verdon. Uh, speaking of uh, preterism versus uh, literal view of Revelation, um, I appreciate you regardless, Sean. I love you. You're a great guy. You're a good teacher. Uh, question for you. Uh, you know, the 12 apostles, the names of the 12 apostles on the, on the foundation, uh, you know, of course, I don't think either of us will believe that uh, Judas' name will be there, but uh, who knows? 
But do you think Paul's name will be there or Matthias? Okay, why and why? I, I, believe, I agree with I you. I believe Paul's is the 12th name. Uh, good question, though, because um, Jesus told his uh, apostles, listen, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Well, when they went there, Peter was hanging out, and he's like, uh, hey, you know what? We need to replace Judas, as it says in Scripture. He quotes the Old Testament. And so they cast lots the Old Testament way, and they picked Matthias. And Matthias came forward because he had qualified for all the apostolic things. And Matthias comes forward, and we know nothing about Matthias ever again. Because Peter wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit yet. He didn't have the discernment. He was relying on his old ways. And so Matthias was his choice. Jesus had another idea of someone to bring, and I think we have such a preponderance of that apostle for us. I see him as being the 12th. What I don't see are the, the apostles on the Americas uh, that the, in the Book of Mormon. I don't know how all of them fit in, and I don't know how the modern apostles fit into this, because there's only 12 pillars, right? Yeah. Good question, Robert. Anything else, you guys? You're hanging in there? Everyone's ready to have a stroke? Heat exhaustion? Nothing else? Okay. Let's pray and get out of Dodge. Thank you, Brother Robert. Lord, we uh, seek you. I make mistakes. I say things sometimes I think are right and they're dead wrong. And we need your spirit and your word to guide and move us to the place you want us to be. Along the way, if we find that we disagree with each other, oh Lord, let there be love. Let there be kindness and acceptance and uh, agreeing to disagree because we do still see through a glass darkly. We pray that the, uh, your spirit will be with us in abundance so that as we gather together like this and exit from here, we'll be better Christians to our neighbors, that they will know of our love. They'll know by the fruit of the spirit that's in us that we are yours because that's how we're discerned. Uh, it won't be through our knowledge and it won't be through our ability to debate, but by the love that we share, especially for those who treat us poorly and we return evil with good. We pray for Grant and Myrna, and we pray for Myrna and her hip issues, uh, like Mary, <coughs> and that uh, Dr. Wooten will uh, bless them, and he'll be able to take care of them. We pray for all the people who are normally on our list that they're not on today, but uh, Liz and her uh, hips and her back and her knees, and for uh, Lisa and the cancer that she's battling and is having success. And so we just pray you'll continue to heal her, Lord. We pray that you'll heal all of us with our worldly ways, which, which abides in our flesh. And that we'll remember that we are your temple. You do abide in us. And it's not conditional, Lord. You're in us because Jesus shed blood, uh, prepared our hearts. That's it, by faith. And so we cling to him, we cling to the vine, and we pray that you'll produce fruits of love through us by your spirit. We pray that anybody whose names <coughs> weren't mentioned here, that uh, you'll be, of course, you'll be cognizant of them and that we will be used by you to reach them and others. So be with us now as we exit out here. It's uh, celebrated as Father's Day on this earth. And we pray that if we're getting together with our family uh, on this day or, or whatever, that we'll be a light and we'll be uh, exuding the, the fruit of the spirit, love, patience, joy, temperance, long suffering, all those things against there is no law. And we pray for safe travels for people watching, people at home, and for your glory to continue to uh, spread throughout this world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am so